um, maybe more immature faith is, man, man, I understand Jesus, now teach me some deeper waters of theology. Like, I, I've got this Jesus guy, but, but what else can I learn? Can, can I start going into some systematic? Can I start going into this? Can I start going into that? Teach me some big theological terms. But brothers and sisters, we don't, we don't move beyond Jesus. You don't understand Jesus and then to go into some deeper waters. That is an ignorance and a foolish thought that will ruin you. You never go beyond the consideration of Jesus and what it means for your life today. And so we see this kind of this multifaceted consideration, right? So, so church as a whole, we should consider Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we should consider what Jesus has asked us to do, who he is, his nature, his character, and what that means for us as a whole. But also individually, we must consider Jesus. What is he asking me to do? What sins do I need to repent from? What do I need to confess my shortcomings? And we start to see, and maybe you're starting to recognize that every week we're going to get up and preach Hebrews, and every week we're going to get up and preach any book of the Bible, it's always going to come back to Jesus. And Stephen did a great job last week going through some of the historical heresies and how some of those bleed into, but, but let me, to, to our common day, but let me give you one that... Stay with me because this might be offensive at first, but I've, I've got to kind of preach through this to understand that the heresies of Jesus, that we must consider Jesus and, and how if we don't, if we're not careful, that there are already heresies slipping into the church today that we're not namely aware of. So, so there's this one heresy that would be called the kenosis theory, the kenosis heresy, and, and this is what it simply means that when Jesus came to earth, he was no longer fully God, that he laid down all of his deity. So, so Stephen has done a great job. Uh, whoever else has preached through Hebrews with us, we've, we've tried to nail this hammer down, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, simultaneously, forever and always. Hebrews 13 is going to say this, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But this idea, this kenosis, is that Jesus lays down his divinity. He lays down who he is as God, which a couple summers ago we preached through the attributes of God, and this attribute would be called the immutability of God, that God cannot change. So if John 1, 1 is correct, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, which is Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. If that is true then Jesus could not have laid down his divinity because then he would cease to be God. In that moment and forever, he would no longer be God. But there's this idea that Jesus laid down his divinity. And, and where they get this from is Philippians 2, 5 through 7. I'm going to cover this real quick just to underlie the importance of considering Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says it this way. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So these guys that really believe this kenosis heresy, this, this theory that God laid down his divinity when he sent Jesus, that Jesus was no longer God, he was just a man and right standing with God, will point to this verse and say, look, he emptied himself, emptied imploring that he emptied himself of his divinity. 
And John Calvin would say, no, 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 here's a better way to say that, that he concealed some of his divinity for the sake of manhood, but he was never not God. He was never not 100% God, even though he was 100% man. And one of the easiest ways to combat this heresy is just simply put the Bible. You can't have one argument over here that Scripture contradicts. And Colossians 2.9 puts it this way. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So, Jesus did not lay down his divinity when he came on earth. He was fully God, fully man. Now, I know you're asking, okay, Pastor, what are you talking about? Why does this matter? Um, Raise your, you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, Bethel, Bethel worship. Is anyone familiar with, understand who Bethel is? Okay. So the pastor of Bethel, um, who Bethel is a really famous uh, worship band, big church in California, um, make great music musically, if that makes sense. It's very moving, it, it does that. But, but in his book, and I wanna read it straight from the book so that we can see, I'm, I'm not trying to throw shade, it's like, this is his words, not mine, would deny he would believe in the kenosis heresy about the teaching of Jesus Christ, that he was not fully God. So let me read just two quotes really quick. This is from his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, A Practical Guide to a Life of Miracles. Uh, now, there's a lot of issues with Bethel that I could address in grave sucking and uh, supernatural. I'm, I'm not going to go there this morning. Uh, maybe we can do a school of theology sometime just on this. But, but from his own words, page 29, he being Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. We read that one more time. He performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle, recapturing the simple truth changes everything and makes a full restoration of the ministry of Jesus in his church possible. So they're throwing away the deity of Jesus so that they can perform miracles. All right, so that's page 29. Let me flip over to page 79. Read one more line real quick. Page 79. Jesus lived his earthly life with human limitations. He laid his divinity aside as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. Now, I've read a few things from Bill Johnson that would say, no, 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 I believe Jesus was 100% God, and yes, yes, okay. Uh, I just read two quotes from Bill Johnson that would contradict Bill Johnson. That he laid his divinity aside. Heresy. Kenosis theory, heresy. That is not the Jesus that we understand. So, let's bring this back full circle for a second. Don't buy this book, by the way. I'll... If you want to see this, I'll loan this to you. Don't buy this book. It was made my skin crawl ordering that book, but I had to see it with my own eyes. W- why does this matter? Because he's talking to the church, that how we worship, what we listen to, what we understand as Christians, this is not an evangelistic plea to consider Jesus. This is to the church that we must understand who Jesus Christ is 
Because there's heresy running rampant right now that if we don't know who Jesus is, we wouldn't know that that was a heresy. And I'm grateful for Riley who has gone through and cleared out all of our worship songs that include no Bethel and no songs that's gonna be heresy that's gonna infiltrate our minds with, uh, I just wanna say some bad words, with nothingness with empty praise of ourself, the whole point of that book was not that Jesus would be glorified, that you would be glorified so that you could do more miracles and look at me how great I am. That is robbing Jesus the glory that he is due. The point of Jesus performing those miracles was not so that you can do it too. The point of Jesus doing those miracles so that we have 100% certainty that he was God. So church, let's just consider Jesus because the heresies are still around us. And I want to be really careful here because what I don't want out of this angry rant is to go throw shade at every church that sings Bethel. That's not what I'm trying to accomplish. But I'll be honest, three years ago, I didn't know that truth to be a reality about Bethel. I just didn't. So I would implore you with your friends and family that, that enjoy Bethel, say, do you know what Bethel teaches? Do you know the heresy that's coming out of that place? and gently lead them to deeper waters of Christology. So we have this idea then to consider Jesus. So what then do we consider? Well, great question, the author tells us. Look with me at the end of uh, verse one. Consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession the apostle and the high priest of our confession. So there's gonna be four characteristics that the writer here, the preacher here is gonna implore us to consider about Jesus. And the first one that we see is that Jesus is an apostle, which means the sent one. So this is just a fancy way of saying Jesus was sent by God. And this is the only time in scriptures that Jesus is referred to here as the apostle, even though the word sent is all around the ministry of Jesus. But Matthew 10 40 puts it this way, whoever receives you, as Jesus talking, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, God has sent me here. Mark 9 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever sees me receives not me, but one who sent me. Maybe the best articulate of this, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when we consider Jesus, the first thing that we need to see is that he was sent by God. For what purpose? What was the purpose of God sending Jesus as an apostle? Well, Galatians says it clearly, for our salvation, to redeem those who were under the law, that we understand that we were all born sinners, we we're all born guilty. There's nothing we could do. There's not enough good deeds in our hearts to pursue Jesus. We are totally depraved and there's nothing we can do about that. Romans would say, because of the sins of Adam, we're all cursed. We're all born into a curse. And so Jesus was sent. He was sent. Jesus is an apostle. He was sent to redeem those who were under the law. So consider our salvation. Consider Jesus, the apostle that was sent by God 
to redeem those who are under the law, to redeem those who are in sin. But he doesn't stop there. He says, consider as an apostle, but also as a high priest. And what then, I mean, we have to understand some contextual stuff. High priest means nothing to us, but to these Hebrews, to these Jewish Christians living in Rome, they knew exactly what the author meant when he said high priest. And I'm not going to dive too much into this because really the the rest of Hebrews dives into this idea, specifically chapter 4 and 5. But the author is continually laboring over this fact that Jesus is the high priest. And here's why. Because in the Old Testament, the high priest was the intercessor between man and God. That's what he did to become right standing with God. You had to go through the priest. The priest had to offer the sacrifices for you so that you could be in right standing to God. You would offer prayers. You would offer sacrifices. The priest was the intercessor. And so now he's saying, no, 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 that's no longer true, that Jesus is the intercessor. That if you want access to God, it has to come through me. And most of us have memorized that verse sometime in VBS, Sunday school, Awanas, something. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Y'all are so good. So we understand this and we're seeing that that is only possible because Jesus became the high priest. Now look with me at verse 2 as we're considering Jesus, the apostle, the high priest. The next thing that we see is that he was faithful. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Now again, contextually, we have to understand this. Because when we hear Moses, maybe some of us think of, you know, the old movie we saw. Maybe some of us think of the felt board with Moses slapped up on top. Maybe some of us don't really know who Moses is because it's a popular belief that the Old Testament doesn't matter. Here is what they heard. When they heard the name Moses, everything perked up because Moses was the end-all, be-all hero from them from the Old Testament. Everyone loved, respected, studied, understood, believed in Moses. Everyone did. So in the consideration of Jesus, the author here says Moses was great and he was faithful. This is no, in no way a putting down of Moses, but this is an elevating of King Jesus. That Moses was incredible, but Jesus is far better. He's far more faithful. So when you consider Jesus in your suffering, in your persecution, in your hardship, remember how much love and respect you have for Moses. We should have way much more for Jesus because Jesus is the better Moses. So let me just throw out a few things just to consider about Moses so that we can fully understand the faithfulness of Jesus. First, we see that Moses was divinely chosen for his epic task. Moses, if you're familiar, right, there was the the, uh, murder of children happening. So Moses' mother put him in a basket, put him in the river. He rolled up to Pharaoh's house, was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in the kingdom of Pharaoh. Not accident not coincidental. God chose Moses for his epic task. Second, Moses became the most improbable deliverer of his people. Moses was not a great guy. Moses was not this impressive specimen. He had a stutter and an anger issue. But God still used Moses to have a mighty display of power. 
Exodus 7 through 12 tells us that he stands up to Pharaoh and issues these plagues on behalf of God to turn the Nile to blood. The plagues, all of these leading up to death of the firstborn. Unless there was the blood of the lamb that covered the doorpost. All of this happened through Moses. Third, we see that Moses served as Israel's greatest prophet. That God communicated to other prophets indirectly through various means, but he communicated directly to Moses, that Moses had access to God that no other man had. Fourth, that Moses was the lawgiver. Through the communication of God to Moses, it's how we have the law, how we have the Ten Commandments. And because of that, Moses was charged to uphold the law for all the nation of Israel. Fifth, he was Israel's great historian. If you look at the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, right, who authored those? Inspired by God, Moses. So not only was Moses charged to, to get the law, to establish the law, to, to uh, uphold the law, to make sure Israel upholds the law, but he's also a great historian. He writes all the stories of God's faithfulness. And last, we see that he was still very meek in the midst of all of this. Numbers 12, 3 puts it this way, that he, Moses, very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. So even though Moses was the man that you read through the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the leadership of Moses, 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 Moses was everywhere. And you would think in light of all of that, Moses would have gotten a little bit of a big head, but he didn't, but he didn't. And because of the faithfulness of Moses, we see, man, if, if Moses did this, how much greater, how much better is Jesus? Look with me at verse 3. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now let me just stop right here because glory is that word, right? That biblical language, that biblical word that we can kind of dismiss a little bit. But, but we know glory when we see it. Right? We're, we marvel at something. When something happens, it just kind of leaves us speechless. We understand it. When you see the Braves hit a walk-off, that's glory. You just marvel at it. When you see Georgia destroy Tennessee, you just marvel. Any Tennessee fans here? Sorry, Katie. Uh, Tennessee played great. Give them a trophy. They did excellent. We marvel, we, we understand glory when we see it. And so what the author is saying is that he, Jesus, is counted more worthy because of the glory. And then he gives an illustration. Again, I, I would want to, as a sermon writer, put an illustration right here, and he just lays it in my lap. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And we understand this. So, so during COVID, um, my honeydew list got a mile long. Uh, and one of the things that I was trying to implore my beautiful bride was, look, uh, I will do some of this, but what I don't want, what I don't want is these projects to linger for the rest of the year. And then she had to go break her back. And guess what? We have no backsplash. They're just lasting. The, so one of the things that we did, I'm just kidding. She didn't mean to break her back. One of the things that we did was we added a roof to the back of our deck and we added stairs. 
Now, we've had a lot of people come over after, and they've, they've looked at it, and, and let me be clear, uh, by we, I meant I called Rob, Greg, and Teddy and said, hey, y'all want to come over? I'll buy you pizza if you'll come over. And they did it, and I watched. I've learned I'm a great supervisor. But what has never happened since that roof has gone up and the stairs have gone on, no one has ever walked out and marveled at the wood. Oh, brother, this is a great two by six. Oh, man, that, that screw that you have holding that six by six up. Oh, brother, Whew. that screw, man, you did it. Not you, Gabe, that screw, look at that screw's doing. Even though I used the wrong screw and the whole deck's gonna fall apart in a year or two. Don't tell Bree. Right? No, no one is marveled. Look at that. Ten. Oh, my goodness. No. Here's what everyone says. Man, you did this? Which at first I'm like, get out of my house. Yes, I did this. But they marvel at the one who builds, not the building. There's a, there's a massive difference here. They don't marvel at the wood or the 45 degree or the brand new saw that my wife let me buy so that I could build this. They marvel at the people that build it. And there's a massive distinction happening in verse 3. This, this turn of events starts to happen where they're saying, no, 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 Moses was faithful and consider Moses. Moses is great, but Moses was not the builder. Moses is not the builder. The builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses is the house of God, but Jesus is the builder. And we see this, I mean, take it away from when we look at great art, when we look at incredible musicians and concerts, when we drink incredible sodas, we marvel at, we marvel at, if you like an IPA, just don't even, I just don't get you. I don't think anyone actually likes IPAs. Just, you just want to be cool and try to drink IPAs. Drink coffee, marvel at coffee, that's better. IPAs are trash. Sorry, I should not have gone on that rant, but. <laughs> so when we consider this, we have to see Jesus as we consider Jesus as the builder. He's not like us. He's incredibly different than us. And there's going to be another distinction that we're going to see here. Look with me at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So this illustration keeps getting teed out here that Moses was the house, Jesus is the builder of the house, and this happens because Moses was a servant and Jesus was God's son. Servant here doesn't insinuate just a slave. This is a high honor of servanthood, but still it's like a distinguished honor, almost uh, like, uh, I don't know, like a squire, if you will. But still that servant can only do what the master has asked him to do. But a son, a son has a full reign of everything that is his father's. And as a firstborn son, understanding biblical language, that that is his inheritance. All that the father owns, the son owns and will run for him forever. That is what we see from a firstborn son. So although Moses was incredibly faithful, Jesus is so much more. So if for this original audience, look at Hebrews and look at who Moses is and understand that Moses is better for us as we consider Jesus, the takeaway from here is anything that we aspire to, look to, hold at high esteem that's not Jesus, we must understand that Jesus is better. 
that we shall not worship the created over the creator. That anything that we hold of high regards was made by Jesus. So the, that cannot be better than Jesus itself. Exodus 14, 31 puts it this way about Moses. That Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against him or against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord as a servant of Moses. So as we start to wrap this up, let us then look at verse six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. We are his church. We are the brothers and sisters under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If indeed, now here's where we start to lay in the plane. What is the application as we consider Jesus as the apostle, as we consider Jesus as the high priest, as we consider Jesus as the faithful, as we consider Jesus as the builder of all? What are the implications? If we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If we hold fast. Now let me really quickly address one thing that Stephen mentioned last week, and we're going to have to address this a few more times over Hebrews to make sure that we don't fall into this understanding that we can lose our salvation. Here, here's how Albert Moeller puts it. The author of Hebrews and the rest of Scripture teaches that only those who persevere in faith will be saved. That only those who persevere in faith will be saved and that all who have genuine faith in Christ will persevere. So it's important to distinguish here, and we can't not finish that sentence, that only those who persevere in faith will be saved, but not, excuse me, and that all who have genuine faith will persevere. But that doesn't, so when we read this, that doesn't mean that there's not gonna be days where we're tempted to give it all up. That doesn't mean that Christianity is not gonna get really hard. It doesn't mean that suffering and persecution and hardships aren't coming our way. One of my favorite hymns says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Bind my heart. This is this idea. It doesn't mean that we're gonna lose our salvation. If it's true faith, we will persevere to the end, but we're gonna have some really, really hard days. Hold fast. So, so the three application points from this preacher puts it this way. Remember that we are his house, the church. So how do we persevere? How do we consider Jesus this? Be in community, be in family group, sit under biblical teaching, talk about the things of God with your brothers and sisters in the faith, value the church. That's how we consider Jesus. Second, hold fast to our confidence in our hope, Jesus. Hold fast to our confidence in our hope. So how do you lose confidence? How do you lose confidence in Jesus, our hope, faster than any other way? Self-confidence. You take your eyes off of King Jesus and you put your eyes on yourself. You take your hope away from King Jesus and you put your hope on yourself. Self-confidence will ruin will ruin the faith you have in Christ. And number three, hold fast to our boasting and our hope, Jesus. 
Same question. How do we lose the boasting in the gospel that has saved us? We boast in ourselves. And in America, in the time that we live, self-confidence and self-boasting are almost celebrated. That's why we can't look like the world. We should follow the example of Moses and Jesus and celebrate meekness. So here's how the author ends it for the people of Hebrews. But here's how I want to end it for us. Because I've, I've been the pastor here. We, we planted the church seven years ago, six years. We've been, yeah, something, six, seven years. We've been here for a while. And, and there, there's been a repetition here uh, that when we think through, when I've prayed through this idea of considering Jesus, and I read this quote from Calvin Miller, it, it just hit the nail on the head. So, so let me just read the quote. I'll elaborate a little bit, and then we'll pray. Yeah, I think it'll be on the screen. One barrier, one barrier to full intimacy with the Savior is hurriedness. Intimacy may not be rushed. To meet with the Son of God takes time. We cannot dash into his presence and choke down spiritual inwardness before we hurry to our one o'clock appointment. Inwardness is the time-consuming, open only to minds willing to sample spiritually in small bites, savoring each one. Intimacy with Christ comes from entering his presence with inner peace rather than bursting into his presence from the hassles of life. A relaxed contemplation of the indwelling Christ allows for an inner communion impossible to achieve while oppressed with busyness and care. And he sums it up in this last sentence. Holy living is not abrupt living. Not one who hurries into the presence of God is content to remain for long. Not lean, long. Those who hurry in, hurry out. Those who hurry into the presence of God, hurry out. So as we think through, what does it look like? What is the biggest barrier to us considering Jesus. I think we've got to look at two, two factors, the discipline of considering and the hurriedness of life, that we value running ourselves ragged. Society values that. So, so when we stop, when we think through, when we ponder how to consider Jesus rightly, church, I implore you and myself that we must make time. That it is an honorable, right thing to quit things, to say no to things so that we can deeply consider Jesus. I had a conversation this week, and I'm not going to use her name because I don't know that I have permission, but was incredibly proud as my wife and I were meeting with this couple and she came to this conclusion that she was busting her bottom, because I don't know if kids are here, working her tail off for no reason. That she had saved up the money that she needed to save to pay for school, and she continued to work, and she was running herself ragged. So her, by the help of her fiancé, said, hey, why don't you quit your job? Why don't you, you only work one day a week. You've got the money saved that you need to quit so that you have more time for the family of God and to consider Jesus. And so she did. How counterculturally is that for us? That this individual, that this couple chose 
considering Jesus and time with the family of God to be more valuable than a couple hundred extra dollars in their checking account every month. That's what it looks like for us to reject the idea of hurriedness in our life so that we can actually consider Jesus. So this week, my challenge based on what we see in Hebrews 3 is to make time to consider Jesus. Pray to him as our high priest, the one who intercedes for us. Meditate on him, the most faithful. Worship him as the son of God and ponder on him being sent to us, to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us. Let's pray. Father, as we consider who Jesus is, if we're honest, there's two avenues here that we are even bored with who Jesus is, that we've heard the stories, we understand the scriptures, and we, we understand no way that this means anything for us. Or the other side is that we feel like we're just trying to drink from a water hose, that there's no way we can understand the height, the depth, the breadth of who Jesus is. And so for those in the room that, that lean more towards the apathy, Father, would you open their hearts this week to the mysteries of who you are? Would we never be bored with the same old stories of Jesus? but would we find our hope in them? Would we find our joy in them, our satisfaction in them? And for those that feel like they're just trying to drink from a water hose and, and understand who this Jesus guy is and is learning more than they can comprehend, keep going, church. Keep wrestling, keep asking, keep thinking, keep praying, keep meditating, keep making time for these things. And Jesus, thank you that we can know you. Thank you that, that you've given us your word, that you've written on our hearts who you are. And so, Father, we pray that we would not look like the world around us. Jesus, we pray that we would not look like the world around us, that we would not value the same things, live our lives in the same way, that our schedules and the world's schedules would look different, that our focus and the world's focus would look different as we intentionally make time to consider you, the apostle, the high priest, the faithful son. And Jesus, would we fall more in love with you in this process? Would we wonder more? Would we give you more glory, more honor, more praise as we understand rightly who you are? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.